Support for IPR comes from Patrick Furry Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism. Online at patrickfurrylaw.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Later in the hour, sociologist and political scientist Marina Zalasnaya of the University of Iowa. We'll visit with her again. Always fascinating, um, a sociologist and political scientist based here in Iowa, but she's a native of Ukraine. Uh, she'll comment on how the outbreak of war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas this weekend may impact the war in Ukraine. Also commenting on dropping support for the war effort in Ukraine in Congress. Also polling showing um, a drop in support among uh, Americans in general. And the challenge of reforming Ukrainian institutions and how uh, Western support may hinge on cutting corruption there. But first... Uh, Since we've been hearing about the risk of wildfires growing across the Midwest uh, as the harvest begins and, of course, the drought lingering, even getting worse in some areas, let's check in with Justin Glisson, our state climatologist here in Iowa. Hi, Justin. Hello, Ben. Always a delight to be with you. Thank you for joining us again. Um, Let's start with the drought map. What does the latest drought map tell us? Describe it, please. Yes, so the drought map looks ugly. We look at eastern Iowa on a scale of D0, which is that abnormally dry category. So more reflective of 30 to 60 day dryness versus that D3 extreme drought to D4 exceptional drought that we see in eastern Iowa. We have a bullseye from basically uh, Tama, Benton, and Lynn County of that exceptional drought category. So if we look at 100 years of data, let's say weather stations within that D4 region, you wouldn't see once but every 50 to 100 years a station being in D4. So that gives you a a great idea of just how dire the precipitation deficits and other hydrological impacts that we're seeing, especially in east central Iowa. Mm -hmm. So D4, this is sort of the top level of intensity on the the, um, map, and those folks in uh, Benton and Lynn County mostly know what this looks like. So this is just rock-hard ground. Everything's turned brown pretty much, right? And the trees are just struggling to survive even, right? Exactly. We we think about this is the 172nd week in which D1 moderate drought has been somewhere across Iowa. This has been the longest drought in the U.S. Drought Monitor uh, period of record, which goes back to 2000. But if you look at proxy years of uh, what we would call standardized precipitation index or a historical perspective on just how wet or dry a location is, we haven't seen a drought on, of this longevity since the 50s. Now, this does vary from other droughts in 1988 and 2012, given that those two periods saw very expansive and pervasive drought conditions, record crop failure, widespread hydrological impacts. We've had a long drought with this current drought that we're in, but we haven't seen it coupled with extremely warm temperatures for long periods of time. And that's where we've seen differences with uh, even a longevity drought versus previous droughts. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have this stripe. Well, it's kind of a curvy stripe in eastern Iowa, the eastern third of the state with a large area of D3 extreme drought and then that bullseye of exceptional drought D4. What can you say about the rest of the state? 
So the rest of the state is still in widespread D1 to D2 drought, so moderate to severe drought. This drought has been interesting because we've seen D3 and D4 conditions dancing back and forth. This is the first time in the period of record of the U.S. Drought Monitor that we've had at D4 in eastern Iowa. Uh, several weeks ago, we started to see really dry conditions coupled with uh, heat waves, and that pushed along these longer-term precipitation deficits. So we even had a swath of D4 drought across the Iowa-Minnesota-Wisconsin border. The next week, however, we got into a more active storm track and saw precipitation amounts anywhere from five to six inches, which which kind of reversed that D4 condition, and we backslid uh, back to D3 drought. But still, this shows you that as we get into these transitory seasons, especially spring and fall, we can see weather patterns come through that can dump a lot of much-needed rainfall. Mm -hmm. What can you say about how long this drought is likely to persist? Is there any way to know? That's a great question. Typically, looking back at drought years that we've had, I mentioned 1988, 2012, and then droughts that we had uh, in early 2000s, you would see typically two to three waves, so a, a year and a half, two-year drought. This, again, as I mentioned, has been the longest that we've seen a, an anomalous drought as well, given that while we do see widespread impacts, especially agriculture this year, we had record yields in 2021 and 2022 two drought years within this 172-week period. Uh, where we're seeing the higher impactful um, conditions across the state are in very low stream flows and soil moisture profiles that are basically dry. Uh, Iowa soils are some of the richest soils on earth, can hold anywhere from 11 to 15 inches within that profile. You have locations in eastern Iowa that have basically one to two inches of available soil moisture. Uh, so you talked about trees dropping leaves. When you start to see trees needing to be watered and not uh, with widespread precipitation, but irrigation, that's when you know that the deeper profiles are really drying out. And that's why this drought has been anomalous because we've had peaks and valleys. We've had improvements and we've had degradations, but we're in the fourth cycle of this drought. Mm -hmm. um, I understand there are some Communities in Iowa are uh, very concerned about drinking water supply because of the drought. Comment on that. Yes. So you look at eastern Iowa, water is more available in terms of when we get into drought conditions versus, let's say, northwestern uh, Iowa that has shallow alluvial wells and water quality is not as good as the aquifers that feed eastern Iowa. I have a meeting later today with some municipalities in eastern Iowa discussing water conservation uh, and the impacts of the drought that we're seeing. We have some locations in which municipalities are using, uh, going deeper into wells, which the water quality is not as good as the shallower wells that are fed by the aquifers in rivers. Uh, so there is a silver lining here. Every time I do schedule some sort of drought meeting uh, in the seven-day forecast, there looks to be a pretty substantial potential for measurable rainfall statewide, in fact, across the upper Midwest. And this gets back into hydrology. All that water flows into the stream systems, the Missouri and the Mississippi. And on the Mississippi side, we're seeing, again, record low levels like we did last year, which of course impact large traffic and input costs for our farmers trying to get corn and beans out of the field and um, export. 
Right, and um, with that, that that equipment out in the fields, we just need a spark to light this stuff. And, of course, these drought, um, uh, the drought is fueling concerns over the risk of wildfires throughout the Midwest. And traditionally, grass fires, not uncommon for the Plains states. But uh, comment on, on the different picture we have because of these um, these drought conditions when, and, and the message you want to get out about preventing these wildfires. Absolutely. So... Be cognizant of weather conditions out there. We have a lot of dry fuel, given how dry conditions have been. We're also in a period of time when relative humidities are lower, so we have a lot of dry air and, of course, cooler temperatures. But as you mentioned aptly, just one spark can start a field fire. We talk about combines rolling in the field. We've seen several across the state in which we've had combine fires. Uh, Farmers are uh, intuitive. And uh, luckily, we've had a lot of them catch those combine fires, and they're able to empty out the combine before this widespread fire can form in the fields. Uh, so yes, just be weather aware out there. Make sure the equipment is, is has been serviced, and just be careful out there. That's one of the things that we push always during harvest, but especially with how pervasive the drought is right now, uh, keep your eyes uh, out there for yourselves and your neighbors. Mm-hmm. Justin, we have uh, two or three minutes uh, left. Uh, let's let's just talk about more generally the weather swing we've e- experienced in the last few days. Uh, temps uh, last week, 80 to 90 degree range. Now we have this week in parts of Iowa freeze warnings. How unusual is that for this time of year? Not so much unusual for this time of year, given that we're in a transition from smaller scale, what we call mesoscale type precipitation, which is driven by thunderstorms during the summer, to what we call synoptic scale or widespread larger state statewide uh, scale precipitation patterns that come through those large low pressure systems that swing across the state with cold fronts. So you mentioned highs up in the 90s, mid 90s, we had a 97 degree reading uh, just uh, 10 days ago. And now we have temperatures down in the 30s. This is what we see when you get high amplitude behavior with the jet stream. In wintertime, this might be uh, uh, comparable to a polar vortex outbreak or an Arctic intrusion, uh, given the colder air that is north of us. But we see these uh, we see these ebbs and flow of, uh, for lack of a better phrase, of weather patterns across the United States during fall. And that's where we really see the shift in temperatures, but also the possibility of much wider spread rainfalls. Uh, Also, we're in a moderate to strong El Nino phase, which are warmer sea surface temperatures in the eastern Pacific. Uh, Warmer sea surface temperatures feed thunderstorms in the eastern Pacific, and that impacts where the storm track sets up over over the United States. Now, we are in 172 weeks of drought. We just got out of three years of the El Nino phase, the cold phase. Uh, so we do see a large-scale shift in the mid-level, uh, mid-latitude atmosphere. And hopefully, if we look at analog years in which we do see this behavior of El Nino in fall into winter, warmer winters, but also slightly wetter falls, why a warmer winter would be great. Soils don't freeze as deep and you get infiltration of rainfall or snow melt and we don't take as long to thaw getting into spring. All these would be the key ingredients uh, to start putting a dent in these uh, drought conditions. 
Justin, we don't have much time, 30 seconds or so, but uh, we haven't mentioned climate change after 10 minutes of talking about the weather and this extreme weather. Uh, tie it into climate change. How do we know it's tied to climate change? We do. We're getting drier dries and wetter wets, and they're commingling with themselves. We think of 2018, D3 drought in southeastern Iowa, record wetness and 151 years of records across the northern third of the state. So our extremes are becoming more extremes. When we have wet years, they're wetter. When we have dry years, they're drier, and they're happening closer together. Okay, Justin Glisson, thank you so much. State climatologist of Iowa. Justin, we love checking in with you. Thank you for giving us a a big picture about the the dire situation on on many fronts, weather-wise. Thank you, Ben. Always a pleasure to talk with you. And we'll be back after a short break with sociologist and political scientist Marina Zalosnaya of the University of Iowa, a native of Ukraine. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Patrick Furry Law, a business law firm offering technology agreements, intellectual property law, privacy law, and more. Proudly supporting quality local journalism. Online at patrickfurrylaw.com. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, let's focus the remainder of the hour on conflicts abroad with Marina Zalosnaya, a native of Ukraine. She's on the faculty at the University of Iowa, really with an an interesting background and her area of scholarly expertise. uh, Very unique here. She's Associate Professor of Sociology and Political Science, Director of the European Studies Group at the University of Iowa, also a co-founder of the Corruption in the Global South Research Consortium. And uh, Marina, welcome back to our program. We really love having your expertise Thank you, Ben. I'm happy to be here. You explore, just so our public, uh, our listeners know, that uh, your area of focus in your research really is is in public sector corruption and the political behavior surrounding it. And we're going to definitely have you address that as it pertains to Ukraine. Uh, But obviously, over the weekend, uh, we want to get your comments on Ukraine, uh, given the events in the Middle East. I feel we have to start with the weekend's stunning attack on Israel by the Palestinian militants of Hamas, um, the possibility of a wider regional war here. Uh, We don't know how big this will get. Um, The U.S. ramping up its provision of military equipment, its munitions and other resources to Israel, also deploying ships and aircraft near Israel in a show of support. So broadly speaking, what is your initial reaction, you know, in the early very early time, uh, period here uh, about how this will affect Ukraine. Right, Ben, you're absolutely right. Um, Hamas' attack on Israel um, and uh, the possibility of ongoing conflict uh, is going to have profound implications for the conflict in Ukraine. Primarily, of course, uh, my worry, as well as uh, the worry of Ukrainian leadership and a lot of allies in um European and American governments is that this new 
sort of um, kind of more recent, more attention-grabbing attacks will divert attention from Ukraine, right? Ukrainian conflict has been going on for all, over a year, actually. You know, it's going to be two years in February, and a fatigue with Ukrainian um, updates uh, is settling in uh, for the public and for the politicians. And uh, the worry is that sort of that this... Um, more um, acute situation in the Middle East will divert not only the attention, of course, but also the resources. United States has been supplying significant amount of military aid to Ukraine. And um, as we'll discuss later, um, it has probably, you know, it, it has generated reaction from a lot of Parts of the Ukrainian, uh, sorry, of the American government, as well as the American public, a reaction that basically amounts to the desire to decrease the aid. Uh, mm-hmm. The feelings um, among these groups is that Ukra- United States has been spending too much money um, on Ukraine while disregarding other crises that are important, including the crisis at the border um, in the United States. So another conflict that requires United States attention and that um, will likely require United States resources uh, is um, risking decreased support for Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just in in my reading of um, taking in of what's happened on the weekend here, too, uh, whether you want to comment about these, but these are from, you know, uh, Reuters, uh, Associated Press and and, and so forth here on the conflict that we're following here um, at the beginning of this week that for now, U.S. officials insist that aiding Israel on the military front won't affect aid to Ukraine. Uh, There are some connections uh, that we have uh, being drawn in some of these reports. For instance, uh, you know, in earlier months, we have had Israel refusing to send their so-called Iron Dome defense, air defense system to Ukraine to help protect civilians and military positions from these Russian attacks. Um, And then we have uh, uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine linking uh, the two conflicts um, by bringing in uh, Iran here. I, I don't know what you want to comment about, but what are your thoughts uh, about uh, Zelensky's reaction initially here? Right. Uh, it's a very important question because I think what we're seeing here and what's demonstrated by Zelensky's comments is that real-life realignment of geopolitical alliances is occurring. The, the thing is that Zelensky led his comments um, with a parallel that he drew between Hamas and Russia. Uh, obviously, you know, we cannot complain, c- compare a militant group uh, in uh, Palestine to a, a large country uh, in Eastern Europe. But the comparison that he made was that they represent the similar kind of evil, the similar kind of threat to democracy. Uh, And of course, the uh, nations under threat are Ukraine and Israel. This suggests very clearly that Ukraine is trying to align itself with Israel in this situation, um, putting Russia on the other side of the conflict as aligned with Hamas. However, the reason why this is interesting is that it's not necessarily reflective of 
the complex situation in the region. Um, mm. The fact is that Israel has not aligned itself clearly with um, either side, with either Ukraine or Russia in the conflict. Uh, as you mentioned, has refused to supply certain kind of weapons that Ukraine Ukrainians had requested uh, to help um, address the aggression from Russia. Israel and Russia continue to maintain a, a, a relationship uh, with each other, diplomatic and economic relationship with each other, despite the conflict. Um, another important player in this um, scenario, of course, is Iran. Um, Iran um, and the different relationship between Iran and Russia and on the one hand and Iran is in and Israel on the other complicates the situation. Russia and Iran are not adversarial to each other. Russia has towed since the 90s a very um, careful balance, uh, trying not to alienate Iran, one of the largest countries in the region. And uh, we know that Russia has used Iranian missiles, specifically the uh, Shahid, uh, drones to and weapons to um, assist in its attack against Ukraine. Obviously, Iran is a, a, an enemy of Israel. So uh, in that sense, Israel and Russia are not aligned. But despite the complexity of uh, sort of multiple alliances and cross-cutting alliances in the uh, in the region and between the region and and Russia, what we're seeing right now in reaction to Hamas's attack and Israel's retaliation, we're seeing a very quick realignment where Ukraine is trying very hard to make a kind of a, a, a signaling. Um, message uh, to uh, the West uh, and to its people that they uh, that the country is in full support of Israel, but also that the country of Ukraine is similar to Israel. Mm. Now, this mm -hmm. is very important because a lot of analysts have talked about the future of Ukraine as kind of looking perhaps uh, similar to um to, to Israel specifically in its relationship to, to the United States, right? Uh, that uh, the country will be following the war, will remain highly militarized, um, and that in a lot of ways it's going to allow United States uh, a lot of influence in the region the same way that Israel has allowed United States a lot of influence in the respective region of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. Let me remind listeners who may have just joined us, my, my guest for the remainder of the hour, Marina Zalasnaya, uh, political scientist, sociologist at the University of Iowa, native of Ukraine, in fact, a, a Russian uh, who grew up in Crimea, if I'm remembering right, Marina. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so what I go back to a comment that I heard you say b before to elaborate a little bit on it. We, we have this situation now where Russia, Ukraine and Russia have become used to being the center of global media attention after, what, mm -hmm. 19 months of war. Now we have this huge shift on the weekend with the Hamas talk attack on uh, on Israel. So uh, this comes as a, I, I'll just use the word, for, for Vladimir Putin, perhaps a welcome distraction from his operations in Ukraine? 
Absolutely. Um, this very much plays into uh, Putin's hand. The reason why is because the analysts um, agree that at this point, Putin's strategy on the battlefield is um, to keep the situation just as it is. Um, what I mean by that is that the counteroffensive organized by the Ukrainian forces with the significant aid from the United States and Western European countries has more or less stalled. Um, the opposing forces are at a stalemate, right? So lined up along the front lines of several several um, areas in eastern southern Ukraine uh, or occupied territory currently. Um, neither of um, the um, adversarial forces are, are actually making significant progress, right? So if you follow the day-to-day -day changes in the positions of Ukrainian military and Russian um, defenders, uh, changes are minimal. Um, and this lack of desirable progress or expected progress uh, on behalf of the uh, Ukrainian military is uh, something that f for Russia is um, very desirable, right? The idea that analysts believe um, is behind uh, Putin's tactic to just keep things as they are is that uh, Ukraine is essentially running out of um, weapons, it's running out of money, it's running out of uh, um, military forces that are trained to operate the um, equipment that has been um, provided by the West, uh, while at the same time, the support towards Ukrainian initiative uh, and counteroffensive is waning, right? The idea is that, it, you know, it's clearly waning with the recent events uh, in, you know, American Congress, uh, recent disagreements about uh, approving another uh, injection of resources uh, for Ukraine uh, in the budget, uh, but also the idea that, you know, U United States is... Um, about to um, actively enter a campaign uh, period, you know, because the presidential election um, right. is coming up soon, and uh, Putin is hoping that the outcome of this presidential election will um, essentially uh, play into his hands with um, Republicans coming to power, and especially the wing of the Republican Party that is against supporting the, the um, military efforts of Ukraine. Yeah, I wanted to discuss the, what's happening here domestically regarding Ukraine here uh, in, in just a moment further because I find that fascinating. But 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 back to your your comments on the counteroffensive, uh, we have uh, you know uh, this long discussed counteroffensive that's happened, and uh, now um, you know we're coming. I, I think it was at the start of September that the then top-ranking U.S. military officer, General Mark Milley said he believed Ukraine had about 30 to 45 mm -hmm. days worth of fighting weather left. So you're a native of Ukraine, and, and so this progress, this stalemate now, will be supported by changes in the weather. Typically in, in your where you grew up, um, uh, rains uh, turn roads and areas into just making them much harder to uh, to move around on, and then you've got colder temperatures, right? Right, absolutely. Um 
you know, the the combination of uh, muddy terrain uh, followed by uh, frost and uh, cold uh, make fighting much harder. Um, and, you know, I, I've been hearing conflicting uh, opinions on this. Uh, there are some uh, military analysts that, you know, would say that uh, by now Ukrainian forces and as well as Russian forces um, have adjusted to, uh, to, to to these conditions and that, you know, we shouldn't expect as much of a halt in the military activity as uh, we saw last year. Uh, but the, the fact remains is that in addition to the weather, um, we know that Russia has been preparing its own counteroffensive, right? Russia has been regrouping. Uh, it has been um, mobilizing more forces. So another thing um, that Ukrainian um, forces anticipate is a counteroffensive by Russia in, mm-hmm. um, in the winter months. So time is running out, whether it's 30 days, uh, 45 days, or whatever it is, uh, it's going to get harder for Ukrainians to uh, maintain their positions, uh, not to mention um, to uh, gain additional territory. However, before we go any further, I just want to mention something that Mm -hmm. while we're talking about the stalled counteroffensive, it's also important to note that Ukraine has been actively engaging in um, attacks on Black uh, Sea Fleet infrastructure. So Crimea, for instance, where I'm from, has seen an ongoing um, barrage of drone attacks. Most of them are intercepted, but some of them um, land and cause damage to uh, the uh, infrastructure of uh, the fleet that's headquartered in Crimea. Um, So... uh, Despite the lack of progress, specifically in uh, along the front lines in uh, southern and eastern Ukraine, we have seen a lot of activity uh, by Ukrainians, which which shows that they are, you know, they are trying to do as much as they can. And I think a lot of it is to communicate to the Western partners that uh, progress is being made, and we've seen some positive things come out of that progress. For instance, um, one thing that happened recently was that a, 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 a grain ship was um, departed departed uh, Odessa despite the uh, Russian occupation um, resulting in sort of continuous uh, uh, supply of grain outside of Ukraine. So um, there, are, there are definite um, successes as well, but the counteroffensive, as we know it, admittedly has, has stalled. Okay, uh, Marina, we have to take a break. We're sure glad you're with us in our studio today. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment with more uh, analysis from Marina Zalesnaya, uh, native of Ukraine, as you've been hearing. She's on the faculty of the University of Iowa, um, uh, professor, uh, associate professor of sociology and political science, but also director of the UI's European Studies Group, and we want to get into her real wheelhouse of expertise in the final part of our program, um, uh, corruption and how uh, that is really um, a hinge for continued Western support. And what is the nature of corruption in Ukraine? How is it different from here? We'll talk about that when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. 
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. Marina Zalaznaya is with us, a native of Ukraine, also on the faculty for many years at the University of Iowa as Associate Professor of Sociology, Political Science, Director of the UI's European Studies Group, co-founder of the Corruption in the Global South Research Consortium. So many areas of expertise. We're drawing on uh, this portion of the program from Marina. Uh, Let's go back to where we left off a little bit, because you talked about the implications of the stalled counteroffensive and uh, the successes also that Ukraine has had in uh, trying uh, to uh, attack parts of your homeland, uh, Crimea, uh, as a key to uh, strategically uh, turning um, the, the, the tide of this war. Uh, and I know you have a number of contacts, both in Ukraine and Russia. What is your sense for Ukraine, first of all, of the morale among everyday Ukrainians after 19 months of war? Thank you for asking that, Ben. Um, I continue to be uh, infinitely impressed by um, ordinary Ukrainians. The resilience of these people, the willpower, the um, motivation, right? So we, as you mentioned, it's been 19 months. And you would expect to to begin hearing the notes of desperation or, uh, you know, the, the willingness to give up. But ordinary Ukrainians continue to really see this war um, as an existential battle for the future of their children, right, for um, the future of democracy in Europe and around the world. So um, they continue to be as motivated today as they were 19 months ago, just when the uh, full-scale invasion has occurred first. Um Another thing that I notice um, besides the kind of uh, enthusiasm, continuing enthusiasm and perseverance and uh, lack of desire to give up is that people have adapted, right? So we hear reports from Kharkov, for instance, uh, where large parts of the underground metro system have been converted to house schools for children with, you know, uh, to make sure that uh, the educational process is not interrupted and kids don't have to continue doing school online. We continue hearing uh, reports of businesses restarting um, and reopening and new businesses opening in Kiev. We continue hearing reports of plans that people are making for the reconstruction period um, and the rebuilding of the country, thinking of it as a possibility of um, sort of using it as a, as a clean slate and kind of imagining what their country can be and can look like as sort of a leading democracy, as a part of the European Union and a part of NATO. So there is a lot of optimism, surprisingly a lot of optimism. 
Yeah, incredible resilience um, in these uh, pictures you're giving us of, of what's happening in, in Ukraine, day-to-day life during war. Um, let's let's flip to the, the Russian public. Uh, in the beginning, of course, the early months of the war, uh, we had, um, you know, the, I guess, a couple hundred thousand at least of draft-age males um, leaving the country, fleeing the country. And we also had some protests which were uh, put down by the government in, in Russia. What is your sense of the attitudes now in, in Russian, the Russian public uh, and how those attitudes have, have changed in the last half year or so? Right. Um, when we talk about Russian public, I would really um, sort of uh, draw a distinction between a really small group of sort of liberal intellectuals uh, who have not left Russia. Uh, there has been a significant brain drain, right? So a lot of people continue to to live and, and uh, work uh, from near abroad mostly um, after having left the country uh, following the invasion. But some remain, and uh, I follow a lot of them on social media, and um, the mood among them is gloomy. Um, they continue to wrestle with an idea of their country becoming an international pariah um, and what this means for them in the future. And a lot of them are very pessimistic. Now, um, most people in Russia uh, are not as pessimistic. Unfortunately, and I'm very sorry to report this because, as you mentioned, ethnically, I am Russian, um, even though I grew up in uh, Crimea during um, the time that the peninsula was a part of independent Ukraine. I'm sad to report that people go about their everyday lives with uh, relatively little consideration for the ongoing war. And part of it is that Ukraine, uh, sorry, excuse me, Russian economy uh, ended up being rather resilient despite the sanctions uh, and uh, the war. Um, pressures. Uh, the ruble has dropped significantly. Um, New York Times has reported this morning that it um, has reached uh, the bottom level of uh, about one dollar uh, to a hundred rubles. Uh, but um, Putin's allies, um, the Kremlin, has has put a lot of effort into kind of creating a buffer uh, for ordinary Russians uh, to not continue feeling the war domestically uh, as much as they could have, uh, you know, in part because, uh, as Putin has anticipated correctly, in my opinion, the economic downturn would really... Um, uh, decrease uh, people's support uh, for, for uh, the war and for his leadership. So um, a clever leader that he is, is um, really isolated um, Russian public, uh, which continues to sort of um, have its relative comfort domestically and continues to be very much affected by the state-sponsored propaganda through all of the uh, media channels that are completely controlled by the government. Marina, we have about 10 minutes left of our conversation. Let's go back to our domestic considerations about Ukraine. Congressional leaders here debating President Biden's request for $24 billion in additional funding for Ukraine, uh, of which about $17 billion would be defense aid. Uh, Washington thus far has provided $44 billion. Um, this is for Ukraine's uh, tanks, thousands of rockets, millions of rounds of ammunition. Uh, to defend itself since that invasion in February of 2022. Now, the House 
more recently passed a measure to temporarily fund the government until mid-November. That's been all over in our news. But only after Republicans dropped $6 billion in uh, Ukrainian aid. Let's talk about your, your thoughts on the increasing reluctance of members of the GOP in this country to support Ukraine. Uh, I guess this is all part of the America first isolation, you could call it, that is growing, uh, in, especially in the Republican Party. Absolutely. And, um, you know, even though the, uh, you know, proportionally speaking, the amount of aid that the United States has sent to Ukraine constitutes less than, I believe, 1% of the uh, our military spending overall, it sounds like a lot of money. And uh, because of that, uh, it's easy for uh, the isolationist wing of the party to, to, to draw on these numbers to sort of get domestic support from their constituents and um, kind of making this an issue and um, uh, mobilize them around the ideas of uh, withdrawing the aid. At the same time, I would like to point out uh, the kind of resilience of uh the president and the democratic uh, part of the Congress in trying to fund Ukraine. So there have been conversations about um, going around uh, this uh, restriction by, for instance, uh, supplying money through a third party like Poland or uh, passing one bill for about $100 billion to avoid this kind of issues um, going down the line. But overall, I think that's a sign of fatigue with the war and the sign of what might be coming in 2024. Right. And, and we'll watch what happens with the battle over the, uh, um, you know, we have two candidates uh, for Speaker of the House. Um, so many, so many open questions having to do with that. Let's talk about uh, your expertise uh, as it relates to the current news we've been hearing um, about the state of the war in Ukraine. You explore in your research um, as a political scientist and a sociologist, the public sector corruption and the political behavior surrounding it. You are co-founder of the Corruption in the Global South Research Consortium. Tell us a little bit about what you think an American audience needs to know about, you know, what is corruption in Ukraine? How would that differ from corruption here in the U.S.? Yes, thank you for asking. Um, as a... Um as the situation may be in many other post-socialist countries, uh, Ukraine has struggled with endemic corruption in its post-communist period. By endemic corruption, I mean uh, the prevalence of informal economic exchanges on um, the level of uh, sort of high-level politicians. We know that the influence of oligarchic clans uh, in the uh, Ukrainian politics has historically been really, really strong, but we also uh, are talking about um, low-level corruption, right? So everyday interactions between ordinary people and officials who provide them with services in hospitals, universities, uh, social welfare offices, whatever you think of as a street-level bureaucracy are oftentimes rife with small-scale bribes and um, gifts and favors uh, that uh, kind of make this informal norm of uh, paying under the table essentially uh, a norm, right? A, 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 a modus operandi of life in Ukraine. And of course, with the beginning of, of the war, uh, the issue that has sort of plagued the international discussions of uh, aid to Ukraine as whether or not this aid is going where it is supposed to be going, right, or whether it gets squandered because of the prevalence of informal economic exchanges on the ground. So um, 
recently we have uh, seen a lot of high-level scandals uh, as well as reactions of Zelensky administration to these scandals in, uh, for instance, the Ministry of Defense in Ukraine um, following some reports of um, procurement um embezzlement or embezzlement associated with procurement uh, for the for the Ukrainian army uh, Zelensky has um, dismissed the Minister of Defense uh, Reznikov and replaced him with another um, w- with another person uh, Rustam Umerov uh, who then proceeded to purge a few other officials from the uh, Ministry of Defense. And I think what's very important for American public to understand is that anti-corruption has really become in recent decades a a type of a foreign policy for a lot of countries because it's rife with symbolism, right? So replacing a Minister of Defense with um, another another person is unlikely to to solve um, Ukrainian problem of corruption mm-hmm. that it has been you know struggling with for over thirty years. Um, however, it's a way that President Zelensky is able to communicate the seriousness of his intentions and uh, the strictness of his oversight. Go into perhaps some of the steps that the U.S. Uh, we we know strategically the U.S. believes this is really important to selling the war in Ukraine, also to you know helping Ukraine um, join the Western club here. What are the steps that are being taken to root out this graft, uh, this culture of corruption, to change it, and, and why is it so hard to change? Oh, this is a very difficult question. Um, why it's so hard to change? Um, well. The thing is that informal norms in countries like Ukraine uh, that have not had, you know, centuries of tradition of private property uh, or uh, mature institutions that help support private property, um, you know, they're, they're so ingrained in the way that the country operates that reforms uh, cannot be expected to change things immediately. And I think this is a really important point because I worry, you know, as somebody who studies corruption, I worry about the West's desire to connect or, or, or to, to hinge um, their aid on Ukraine's success in, 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 in battling corruption. I understand the importance of it. But um, just, just recently, just about a week ago, um, a document was leaked uh, that contained uh, United States Department of State's recommendations for fighting corruption in um, in Ukraine. And, you know, it's, it's a document that has a time frame associated with it. So, you know, within the first half a year, um, United States uh, expects uh, Ukraine to, uh, you know, re- increase the civil oversight in the Ministry of Defense. And, you know, within a year, they expect Mm -hmm. a judicial reform. And these are kind of recommendations that we have seen flowing into Ukraine ever since um, the Orange Revolution of 2003-2004. And they have not been successfully implemented. There have been a lot of successes, but most of them have not been successfully implemented precisely because of sort of the deep entrenchment of informal economic relations into the fabric of this society. So 
expecting that Ukraine, uh, no matter how determined it is to fight corruption, is going to be able to do this within the short time frame worries me, right? I think in some ways um, the international community is setting itself up for uh, failure here or potentially for having a reason to withdraw its support. Mm. Um, And... um, I, you know, I, I hope they rethink the depth of uh, <laughs> their expectations um, mm. soon. Marina, we have about a minute left uh, in in the final seconds of our program uh, to zoom out here um, after 19 months of war since the invasion by Russia of Ukraine, uh, of your homeland. Um, do you have any clearer idea of how the war in Ukraine will end, or uh, have we ruled any scenarios out? Very quickly, please. Ukrainians themselves are ruling out any kind of compromise um, in terms of giving up their territory, um, um, including you know not just the territory that's been occupied since uh, February twenty-two. Um, but uh, also uh, Crimea that was taken in um, 2014. Uh, Now, the analysts, however, predict that most likely um, current counteroffensive is going to end in um, either a stalemate, right, so a continuing war of attrition that will last for years, or um, in negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. Um, So the idea in the second scenario is that Ukraine is trying to position itself in the best possible way before these negotiations begin. However, mm. it's it's unclear. It remains to be seen. And um, I, in my personal um, desire is that the, the, the war of attrition does not happen because we've seen the frozen conflicts and Transnistria and um, other places and um, they are extremely costly in terms of the human life and are extremely yeah. difficult to resolve. Um, and um, it would be really tragic to see that outcome. Okay. Marina Zalasnaya of the University of Iowa, sociologist, political scientist, director of the European Studies Group at the UI. Marina, thank you so much uh, for your insights and coming into our studio today. Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation, Ben. I appreciate it. River to River Today, produced by Samantha McIntosh, our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.